Amen, amen, amen. Man, it's good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to be with you. It's good to be reminded of our first love. It's good to be reminded that the Lord is faithful. He will never leave us nor forsake us. So we're going to see part of that faithfulness worked out in our passage this morning. I'm going to read it, and then I invite you to pray with me. We're in Nehemiah chapter 2, uh, verse 9 through verse 20. And as Steve reminded us, um, we'll have our Passion Week service on Thursday night. So we will talk a lot about uh, the triumphal entry and Palm Sunday and what that meant and Jesus's retreat to be with his disciples and him having his last meal with them, but also him being betrayed, not just by his people, but by uh, political leaders of that day and uh, being crucified not for his sins, but for ours. And so we'll uh, recount that and worship the Lord for that on Thursday night. So this is the word of the Lord, Nehemiah chapter two, starting in verse nine. And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king has sent me with, sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so I went to Jerusalem, and I was there for three days. And then I arose in the night, I and only a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was an even no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and then to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by the fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials and the rest of who were to do the work. And then I said to them, do you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And then they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and will build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Let's pray. My Father, I ask right now that you would, for your glory and for the good of your people, bless your word as it is expounded upon and would you, by your spirit, open our eyes to 
spiritual realities that we often are blinded by or blinded to. May you allow us to see evil for what it is and opposition for what it is. But might you also show us your victory over the powers of darkness. And may we leave here encouraged and refreshed to obey you. I pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. 1981 was a pivotal year for pro football. There was a rookie by the name of Lawrence Taylor who would end up winning the defensive player of the year that year as a rookie. And no one else has ever accomplished that feat in the NFL even until this day. Now, what was, what was it about Lawrence Taylor that landed him this honor? First thing, it was his almost inhumane or inhuman, this un, I mean, he was just a monster. I mean, he's like 6'5", 250, and he ran a 4-4-40-yard dash. That's rare. Second thing was his on-field productivity. In Taylor's first year in the NFL, there was no such thing as an official sack statistic. The NFL started counting sacks as a statistic because he obliterated the sack record as a, as a rookie. And so in 1981, he's a rookie. He sacks the quarterbacks, I mean, just numerous times. And now the NFL says, wait a minute, this needs to be a statistic. And his favorite place to line up on the line of scrimmage was to the quarterback's blind side. And so if you're an athlete and you've probably seen the movie, a lot of this comes out of the book that was written that inspired the movie. But a blind side, it's a, it's a movie about an old Miss football player who went on to be in the professional football league. But the blind side of a quarterback, the quarterback calls hike and he hikes the ball. Most quarterbacks are right handed. And so the moment he hikes the ball, he turns in order to get velocity on the ball. And he sees this part of the field. He can see that. But his back is exposed. Well, that's exactly where Lawrence Taylor wanted to line up. He wanted to line up on that side, the blind side of the quarterback to catch him off guard. It is a blind side hit by Lawrence Taylor that ended the career of Joe Theismann. Broke his leg in two. He never played football again. Now, it's not just his stature, his size, his speed. It's not just his on-field productivity. Bill Parcells says, all of that was driven by this inward emotional state. Whereas the league called it a sack, listen to Lawrence Taylor tell you what's going through his mind as he tries to sack a quarterback. I don't just want to wrap the quarterback up. I want to make him see seven fingers when they hold up three. I'll drive my helmet into him or through him. And if I can, I'll bring my arm up over my head and try to ax him into two pieces. So long as the guy is holding the ball, my intention is to hurt him. And if I hit the guy just right, I'll hit a nerve and he will feel electrocuted. And he'll forget for a few seconds that he's even on a football field. <laughs> you hear that? That is the guy that's lining up on your blind side who does not want to just tackle you. He wants to harm you and punish you. Can you imagine being a quarterback? Playing with 
this guy on the opposite line? What's going through your mind when you say hike every down? If it's a running play, you're good because, you know, if he gets to the running back, that's not on you. But if it's a passing play, you know what's going through your mind? Where is he? It was so bad that when they were doing X's and O's and putting the game plan together, there was no X or O for Lawrence Taylor. You simply put 56. And everybody would call 56 left, 56 right, 56 left, 56 middle. I mean, they were literally watching him and his every move. Can you imagine being a quarterback with that guy, with that talent, with that speed, and with that desire? I am not coming to tackle you, quarterback. I'm coming to hurt you. You would know where he is. Your eyes will be in tune with what he is doing on the field. And as much as you would set out to produce and to score and to execute the game plan, you're aware that there is opposition. Somebody's lining up against you who wants to sift you as wheat. I mention this because I think it's proper in this passage to do justice to this theme of opposition. That Nehemiah is going to Jerusalem to obey the Lord and to rebuild the wall. But here's the thing. He's not just going to walk in there and just do it. That opposition rises. And the case that I want to make to you this morning is that fill in the blank. Fill in the blank with any good thing that you want to and aspire to, to bring God glory and honor. And guess what? It will be opposed. Whether it's your marriage, whether it's your singleness, whether it's raising your children, whether it's your money, you name it. Any and every good thing that you and I set out to do that brings honor and glory to the Lord, I promise you 100% of the time, you will face opposition in obeying the Lord. And some of you might be in a dark place where the darkness is getting in there. Where you just see things and it's hard. And I think this passage sort of answers some questions for us. Namely, How deep is this opposition? Is it a pattern to it? And will God's people prosper even in the face of it? And that's what I want us to get at this morning. The first thing is I want to make the case to you that there's a pattern to opposition. And there's real depth to this opposition. And I want to show you that there's a pattern of God being clutch. There's a pattern of him being faithful to his people, despite what they endure and encounter. So the first thing I want to look at is this pattern of, of opposition. Now, when I say a pattern, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that if, that, that if you are new to the book of Nehemiah or you're new here for the first time, 
that, that, that one of the ways that you might interpret the passage that I just read is that, okay, this dude named Nehemiah, he goes and he tries to build this wall in this city. And then these other three cats, they, they kind of come on the scene and they oppose him. In your mind, you might be saying, oh, that, that's just arbitrary. If Nehemiah had come at a different day, or maybe it was a different person or at a different time, then maybe then he would not have faced these men. The case that I'm making to you is it would not have mattered who went. It would not have mattered when he went. The fact that he is going to obey the Lord will itself, in and of itself, incite opposition. Now, I want to show you the pattern first in the book. Now, you remember Ezra and Nehemiah, they were one book at one point in the Hebrew Bible. Now, go back with me to Ezra. Do you remember in Ezra chapter 4, now I'm going to throw out a few names, Zerubbabel. Can y'all say that with me? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. All right, so get that name. He's kind of the leader in 536 of the Jews as they leave Babylon to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild. You know when Zerubbabel made it back with the exiles, that the moment they laid the foundation of the temple, that they screamed and they worshiped. And you know what it says right after that? that the adversaries of the land heard them and came near to them. And the adversaries of Benjamin and Judah, they bribed counselors and they greatly discouraged God's people all the days of Cyrus, all the days of Darius, all the days of Ahasuerus. In other words, when they came in 586 to build the temple, they couldn't even get the foundation laid before these cats just show up and oppose them. And guess what? Their intimidation worked, that the temple was not built until 516, 586 to 516. God's people in Jerusalem trying to build a temple, they're opposed and opposed and opposed. And then, you know what Scripture does? It says, OK, time out. Let's put what's going on with the Jews in Jerusalem on hold. Let me draw your attention to the other Jews who did not leave Babylon to go. And that's where you get the whole book of Esther. It's running in parallel to what's happening in Jerusalem, only it's the Jews who did not go back. And you remember what happened? They were doing nothing. They weren't trying to build a thing. They were just existing in Susa. And all of a sudden, Haman comes up with this plot to wipe them off of the face of the earth. You see what's happening? You're going to try to build a temple? We're going to oppose. Okay, you don't go back and you chose, choose to stay. Guess what? We're going to oppose. So then you get Artaxerxes who lets Ezra go to rebuild and finish. And guess what? Ezra is on the way there. And he says, you know what? I'm afraid of the enemy. And so he calls a fast. Ezra makes it there. But guess what? That same king that sent him, changed his mind and made them stop building. You see, it's a pattern. Doesn't matter if you're building a wall or a temple or if you're just existing, opposition will find God's people. Now, what you see in this text is just how sinister it is. I traditionally will never kind of throw out Hebrew words just to throw them out. Um, I think Hebrew is kind of like an a, 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 a iceberg, right? I don't think you need to see all of it. I think it should come out in our, you know, teaching or whatever. But I think some, Nehemiah is doing something beautiful here, and it'll make sense a little later. 
There's a word play here, and I want to tell it to you, then I'll show it to you, with this Hebrew word tob, T-O-B, and it means good, right? That, and you see it, it's the same good that you see in Genesis when God says it was very good, it was tob, it was tob, tob, right? But there, it's in this passage, it's in the passage three times, and, and you see it in the passage, first of all, in verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, which is a, he's a servant to Artaxerxes, he's a, he's a military official, heard this, it greatly displeased them. You see that? Now here's the question, what greatly displeased Sanballat and Tobiah? Well, it tells you that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Now, that word tob is right there where it says welfare. Someone had come to seek the good of the people of Israel, and that is when these other two dudes were what? It says they were greatly displeased. Now, think about the image. We know we're going to get to it later in Nehemiah. What was it like if you had been living in this city at this time? Your gates were burned, you didn't own your land, you're selling your children, and you are starving. I mean, you are literally living in an inhumane way. And here it is. Somebody comes from the king for your good, to restore dignity, to give you safety, to give you food, to get your children back, and to get your land back. And all of a sudden, these two guys rise up and they're greatly displeased because you've come to bring about good? You see it? Notice again, the same word is used twice. Again, look at verse 18. And I told them, the people, that the hand of my God had been upon me for what? Y'all can talk back to me. For what? For good. And also the words of the king. And they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hand for the what? For the good work. So right there, good, good work. And then notice what happens in the very next verse. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and now they got another dude in on it, they jeered at us and despised us. You see what's happening? Good. This is good. It's a good thing that they have land and that they have food and they have safety. And every time... They're seeking good. These men are angered and frustrated. Now, here's the thing. I've shown you this theme of opposition coming in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. I've shown you the intensity of the opposition that these men are opposing what is good in the sight of the Lord. Now, here's what I want to do. I think Nehemiah does something that is beautiful. He's, he basically says that this is not just a pattern in this book and in my life. He says, stretch it out. This is the pattern of the Bible. And he does it by saying, Tobiah is what? What is Tobiah? An Ammonite. Now, you and I read that, and we read over it as if it has no significance. But if a Jew were reading this, they would know exactly what Nehemiah is doing. What is it about the Ammonites that's so important? Well, if you turn back, you don't have to do it. Deuteronomy 23. Listen to what it says about the, about the Ammonites in Deuteronomy 23, then I'll tell you about the story. 
This is what the Lord says. No Ammonite may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, not one of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you the prophet Balaam and they wanted him to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. Therefore, you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all of your days forever. Now, what's happening? This was a thousand years prior. Moses is coming with God's people out of, the, out of Egypt and into the promised land, and they get around Ammon. And all of a sudden, the king of Ammon or the king of Moab, they were right neighboring countries. He says, you know what? They are licking people up. Every nation that tries to revolt against them, the Lord is with them. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hire a prophet and I want this prophet to curse them. And that's when you get the talking donkey. He starts to see the Lord like it's, it's, it's beautiful, right? You know what God says? They wanted you dead. They wanted to exterminate you. And so when you read that Tobiah is an Ammonite and he is acting with this hostility against God's people a thousand years later, you know what's supposed to be going off? Ding, 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 ding. Pattern. This is a pattern clearly set forth in Scripture. God's people will always be opposed by Satan's people. Always. Now, it's what we call seed theology. I put a really big quote in your bulletin, which I'm going to go ahead and read. In Genesis 3.15, you know what the Lord tells Satan? I will curse you. And I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And he says, you will bruise his heel, but he will strike your head. So this is in Genesis chapter 3. The Lord is saying, Satan, because you have tricked Eve, I put enmity between you and between her and between your offspring and her offspring. Right. So now here's a quote. The conflict between Satan's seed and Eve's seed is announced. The Hebrew term here for seed is commonly used to speak of lineage or descent. It is critical to understand that this is not referring to physical lineage, but to spiritual descent. Satan or the serpent cannot bear children. He is a fallen angel and nowhere in scripture is there evidence that he has the power of physical reproduction. It is rather a spiritual idea in which Human beings can be children of Satan by will, by heart, and by intent. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees. This is why I had uh, Steve read this as our New Testament scripture reading. You are of your father, the devil. This is Jesus talking to Pharisees in that day. You are of your father, the devil. The believer, by way of contrast, who is of the seed of the woman, says, our father who is in heaven. The idea of two seeds or seed theology has immediate consequences in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 4, it is Cain 
who was of the evil one. In 1 John chapter 3, he murders his own brother Abel, who was righteous. Hebrews 11, the raging war between Satan and the Messiah finds its climax at the cross where the Messiah, born of the woman, lands a mortal blow to the serpent. Do you see what he's saying? This seed theology is real. Matter of fact, the Bible says that before any of us became Christians, that we followed the course of the world, that we followed the prince of the power of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience, and that we are our very, by our very nature's children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy according to the great love with which he loved us, he calls us out of the dominion of Satan. But if God does not call us out of darkness, we will be hostile to God hostile to the things of God. We will hate God. We will act just like they're acting in this passage. Spiritual lineage. They're coming to obey. They're coming to worship. They're coming to honor the Lord. And Satan and those who follow him are resisting that's why Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a man who scattered good seed. And the disciples went back and they saw weeds growing with the good seed. And they said, Master, what is this? What is this? He says, the evil one has sown this. You see what Jesus is saying? Telling the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil, or you will be doing the works that I do. Who takes delight in the agony and pain and suffering? Who saw that what God made was Tob in the garden? It was Satan. It was the seed of Satan. The opposition to Nehemiah is not arbitrary. It would not have mattered who went to rebuild. It would not have mattered when he went. The enmity between God's people and Satan's people would have played itself out right there. Now, here is what this means. If you are a follower of Christ, your opposition is not arbitrary. It means that if you are a follower of Christ, your worldview will be attacked. It means that any good thing that you endeavor to do for the Lord, it will be opposed and it will be opposed in ways that I think we miss sometimes. It's not a coincidence, right? That when you're on social media or on Instagram or on Facebook, you get these fictitious profile people trying to befriend you. And it's like this naked woman, right? You know, that, that kind of stuff. Somebody out there demonic is creating this trash and they're sending it to you, infiltrating your space, right? It is not, it is not haphazard. It is not haphazard when Steve is on his computer trying to find some Bible software and he downloads something. You know what he downloads? He downloads a virus that tries to wipe out his entire computer. Viruses don't create themselves. People create them. And someone attached a virus to a biblical thing that he's looking for to try to destroy, right? 
It's not a coincidence that when a friend of mine is planting a church in Camden, that someone is murdered right on the doorsteps of where they're trying to plant the church. That it's not a coincidence that when we're trying to get RUF at Jackson State off the ground, it took us months and months and months because our paperwork, it just sat on someone's desk. And then that person was behaving in a way that is improper of a man of God. It is not a coincidence of all the opposition that you and I feel and see in the world. Please do not ascribe it to something arbitrary. It is intentional and it is malicious and it is methodical and it is aimed at you because you claim the name of Christ. The second thing we see is the depth of this opposition, right? When I say depth, I'm thinking of the layers to it and how complex this opposition can be. And so to get at this, I want us to look at, at, at two things. First, I want us to look at, look at this idea around names in the Bible. And then I want to look at geography. Now, you know that in the Bible, names, not always, right? Not always, but a lot of times names mean something. In other words, when Abram, his name is changed by God to Abraham, and it means the father of the multitude. Jacob, his name is changed from Jacob to Israel, and that El is God. It means one who contended with God. That when you get to the name of Let's say a Jeremiah. Remember that Aya, I-A-H, I mentioned a few weeks ago, it's, it's God's name, Yahweh. So Jeremiah literally means Yahweh exalts. Isaiah, Yahweh saves. Nehemiah, Yahweh comforts. Hakaliah, wait for Yahweh. Go read the book of Hosea and you will see that God oftentimes attaches significance to how people are named. Now, here's the thing. In this passage, you get the name of this first conspirator, and his name is Sanballat or Sinballat. It's an Akkadian name that literally means sin has given life. Sin has given life. And sin was the moon god for the Akkadian people. And so in other words, what you're getting in his name is that the moon, the moon is the author of life, right? That's what's coming out in his name. So we don't know a whole lot about him, but we do know that his mother and his father named him after their God, right? We do know that, that if sin or the moon God is the author of life, then what he's also saying is that Yahweh is not. I mean, that's like one of us naming our child heresy. Like, come here, come here, heresy, you know? <laughs> or, or come here, Satan, you know what I mean? Like, really, like, that's the weight of it. You, it would never cross your mind as a Christian to name your child something that is antithetical to the God you worship and serve. And so when you see sand ballot, sin ballot, Right? That's the first thing. This is, this is some complex stuff, right? Here's the one that really, really, like, it gets me. Look at Tobiah. Look at those last three letters, right? That sounds a lot like Nehemiah, right? Yahweh is at the end of his name. It's Yahweh. 
What's the first three letters? Tobe. Haven't we talked about Tobe already today? And Tobe means what? Good. So his name, I mean, it literally means Yahweh is good. And this dude is a snake. I can get when Nehemiah hears that your name is Sanballat, that he knows what he's dealing with. But when you hear this cat named Tobiah, bro, we got like the last ending. It's the same. And I'm coming to seek good. And you, you say your name means God is good. But dude, like you're not good. Let me show you how, 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 how hard or how hard his heart is in, in this book. Turn over to Nehemiah chapter 13. Now, when I say that, that this web of opposition is complex and there's depth to it, look at what it says in verse 13, chapter 4. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to who? Tobiah, same guy. Prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, and the wine, and the oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, and the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contribution for the priests, Look at what Nehemiah says in verse 7. And when I came to Jerusalem, I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw out all the household furniture that belonged to who? Tobiah, out of God's chamber. And then I gave orders and cleansed the chambers from their filth, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. All right, now come back here. Y'all, you hear what just happened? Tobiah has intermarried with the high priest. Somehow they're related. And he leveraged, he leverages his Jewishness and he leverages his family relations to do what? This little storehouse in the temple that's where the tithe goes. That's where the grain goes. That's how the Levites eat. That's how the singers eat. That's how the gatekeepers eat. You know what he did? Hey, Eliashib, let's put all this stuff that's supposed to go to the priest, that is supposed to be dedicated for the worship of God, let's put that out, and then let me turn the temple of God into my own man cave. You hear what Nehemiah says? I put his household furniture out and I had to cleanse that space. Do you see the darkness in this guy whose name means Yahweh is good and he is a snake, snake, snake? It's not just through the names that you see how deep this stuff is, you see it in geography. All right, Jimmy, will you show that map that I got right there? So I did some research, and when you look up, all right, I know you can't see it, I'm sorry, but I will try to help you see it. So right there in the purple, that is, that is Judah. And right there in the center of Judah is Jerusalem. 
Now, when you say Sambalat is a Horonite, he's from Beth Horon, which is right north. So go straight north. Right there was a line of going into Samaria. Guess who's up there? Sanballat. Go to the east and guess, look at Tobiaz and Ammon. That's the governor of Ammon right there, Tobiah. And then he introduces a third cat by the name of Geshem, the Arab. And guess where he, guess where he rules? Down south. And so think about where God's people are in respect to what's around them. They're right in the middle. And the dude up north, they want us dead. The dude to the east, they want us dead. The dude to my south, they want us dead. And then when you get to Nehemiah 13, he talks about God's people intermarrying with the people of Ashdod. You see the image? They're surrounded by evil. Evil people with malicious intentions are everywhere around them. All right, thank you, Jimmy. This explains a few things. One, it explains why Nehemiah, it says that he goes out at night three times. He says, I went out at night. I went out at night. I don't think the focus of the dung gate and the dragon gate and the dragon pool, I think when we read that, we instantly want to go to, okay, where did he go? I don't think that's the focus. I think because it repeats in the night, in the night, in the night, the emphasis is when did he go out? Why would he go out at nighttime? And why would he tell us, I did not tell anyone what I was doing? And why did he say, I only took an animal and a few men with me that I trust? He sees the darkness is so deep. I don't know who to trust. And now it makes perfect sense why they need a wall. Who's to their north? Enemies. Who's to their east? Enemies. Who's to their south? Enemies. Who's to their west? Enemies. This is the last place where Yahweh's name is exalted. What does this mean? I think it means on some level that as we pursue obedience, that we're going to encounter some outright sandballers, right? They're just like vehement, opposed to the gospel, opposed to you. I get it. I've, I know some. I'm, I'm, I'm friends with some, right? Vocal about their hostility to the gospel and to the faith. Vocal, adamant, rigid, resisting anything you got to say about God. Here's the other thing. There are also some Tobias out there. You have the name of Christian, but you have not the fruit. I had lunch with someone this week, and I will not tell you who. But he's been visiting Redeemer. And one of the conversations that we talked about was just this. Or a pastor, right, whose title and position within the church, it says set apart unto God. It says holy. It says I'm here for the people. And yet, that's not what he's seeing. He's seeing abuse. He's seeing misconduct. 
He's seeing deceptiveness. And what this does is it, 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 it takes us back because you're telling me one thing and yet look at how you're living, right? If you want to pray for your pastor, pray for that. That my life would be consistent. That you would see the real me. That I would desire your godliness and desire your good. That I would not use this position as a means to advance my own agenda. This is not uncommon to the Bible and it is not uncommon to Christianity today. You see it in politicians who will tell the Christians everything they want to hear, right? And we cast our lot there. And their lives look nothing like the faith that we believe in. That's how deep and interconnected and dark this opposition against God and the things of God can be. You with me? Now, here's the thing. I'm going to finish it up with this last kind of, I'm going to bring it all in. It is important to see and feel and be prepared for and to study darkness and kind of how it works. But here's a mistake. Let us not ascribe to darkness more power than it really has. It is not stronger than our God. And it will not win no matter the complexity, no matter the depth. And that's what you see. There's a pattern of God's faithfulness. Now, I know I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I think I can do it. This wall will get built. You know that, right? It's going to get built pretty fast when Nehemiah gets there. You do know that when Zerubbabel started building the temple, the temple did get built, right? That you do know that when, when uh, Haman tried to kill all the Jews in Susa, you do know that God raised up Mordecai and he raised up Esther and that did not happen. You do know that when Ezra is coming through the wilderness with $144 million of silver and gold, he is afraid of the enemy. You do know that the Bible says they got everything there safe and sound. You do know that the same king who, who told Ezra and them to stop building, he, his mind is then changed and he then sends Nehemiah and he sends Nehemiah with armed guards and horsemen. You see the pattern? There is a pattern to darkness and the Bible says it is, it's real, but there is also a pattern of God's faithfulness over the darkness and over the opposition and over every single thing that the enemy and his seed will do. He will not win. And Nehemiah sees the pattern, right? Look at what he says when they ask him, what, what is this thing you're doing? Look at verse 20. Then I reply to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, we will arise and we will build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. You hear what he's saying? He sees a pattern, right? 
We're going to get here and we're going to build. Yes, you got us boxed into the north. You got us boxed into the south. You got us boxed into the east and you got us boxed into the west. And you are governors. But you, do you know who my God is? That that word right there when it says, look at what it says. It says that, that our God of heaven will make us prosper. That word right there will make us prosper in the Hebrew. You know what it means? He will cut a way through a rock. He will make a way, and that is what Nehemiah is saying. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I know that my God has a track record of faithfulness. He will make a way. It is not an if, it's not a but, it's not a maybe. My God is stronger than you. Oh, kings, why do you consult together, and why do you plot against the Lord's anointed? Do you not know that he who is in heaven, he laughs at you? He laughs. That is his confidence. It is not because he is there. It is not because he is the political dignitary who knows how to finagle. His confidence is in the fact that his God will make a way. Haven't we seen God do this before? Think about the best, I'm going to say the goodest, right? I know it's not a real word. I'm just going to say it, right? We think about Tob and he's good. I'm saying think about the goodest, the best expression of God. It's going to be Jesus, right? Think about the good Savior we have in Christ when he was born. You know what they tried to do? They tried to kill him. Let's murder all the children under two years old. We'll, we'll take them all so we can find that one. And you know what? They didn't kill him. You know what? When he started his earthly ministry, he was taken into the wilderness and tempted and tried for 40 days and 40 nights with no food and no water and no drink and no one. He tried to make him fall the same way he did Adam and Eve. And you know what? Our Savior triumphed over that. It is no reason when he started his earthly ministry walking down dusty roads of Palestine that you get demon-possessed and afflicted and people dying that as Jesus is entering the scene to do war with the serpent, the serpent is coming back to do war with him. And that's what you see in the Gospels. And it is no coincidence that the illogic of evil played in the favor of God on the cross it was Satan.